Hello, and welcome to the AAMFT Podcast, your all-access pass to the latest news developments and thought leaders in the world of systemic therapy. We strive to relate, educate, and innovate one episode at a time. I'm your host, Dr. Eli Karam, and we're brought to you by the American Association for Marriage and Family Therapy. Our podcast explores topics that relationship-based therapists care about. In addition to featuring unique conversations and interviews with established experts, our show provides information and education on direct practice and emerging trends in the MFT profession. For more information, please visit us at aamft.org. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Okay, we are here in our third of our spring four episode live podcast series. So you're hearing me and seeing me and our guests today. And we're talking about a systemic conceptualization of interventions with families in a global context. We're continuing to feature authors from the groundbreaking handbook of systemic family therapy. The handbook is the first of its kind resource for clinicians, researchers, educators, graduate students, policymakers, everybody. It's a groundbreaking reference work on the profession and the practice of systemic family therapy and integrates scholarly literature on systemic interventions focused on children, couple, and families into a single resource. Volume one talks about theoretical practice, research, and policy foundations of the profession. Volume two focuses on children's adolescence, volume three on couples, and volume four is families over the lifespan and global mental health, which is our focus today with not only an author and guest, but also an editor of the handbook, Dr. Mudita Rostoki. I'm going to tell you about her in a second, but I'd like to also remind you guys that we're sponsored today by Brighter Vision, the exclusive sponsor for the AMFT podcast live series. It's a preferred vendor of AMFT, and they specialize in websites and marketing everything you need for your private practice. All members of AAMFT receive two months free of a new website, and you can find them at brightervision.com. I'd also point you, if you're interested more, into the handbook at uh, aamft.org slash handbook. I want to tell you about our guest today. Dr. Medita Rostogi is the director of the Marriage and Family Therapy Program and the McCormick Tribune Chair in Marriage and Family Therapy at the Family Institute at Northwestern University, a place near and dear to my heart. And also holds a clinical professorship in the Department of Psychology at Northwestern. She obtained her PhD in MFT from Texas Tech in Lubbock, Additionally, she has earned undergraduate and master's degrees in psychology from the University of Delhi and the University of Bombay in India. Dr. Ristogi has published in the area of couple and family therapy, cross-cultural and gender issues, and South Asian families. She's the editor of the book, Voices of Color, First Person's Accounts of Ethnic Minority Therapists. She's a former program director for the SAMHSA-funded MFP, which we know is the Minority Fellowship Program at AMFT from 2005 to 2011. Uh, Medita served as the Associate Editor for JMFT, the Journal of Marital and Family Therapy, our gold standard journal, another uh, perk of being a member of AMFT. Everybody gets access to JMFT. Additionally, she has over two decades of clinical experience in both India and the United States with a highly diverse client population. Her clinical interests include couples, families, adolescents, cultural and gender issues, uh, domestic violence, and trauma. She frequently presents for the AMFT and other workshops nationally and internationally and conducts training and consultations in the area of leadership. So we're going to be talking all about a systemic conceptualization of interventions and families in a global context. But Majida, I want to know first, this um, handbook project is near and dear to your heart, serving as a associate editor under the late, great Karen Wampler. We've done an interview in the back archives of the AMFT podcast. If you want to listen to with Karen, it was her last interview shortly before she passed away in January of 2020. Talk about the handbook for viewers or listeners just joining us today and why it's so, such an important resource for anybody that practices systemic therapy, Medina. Sure. Well, first of all, thank you so much, Eli. Really, really thrilled to be here. I know you and I have the Family Institute in common. And uh, 
you know, I, I really appreciate such a thorough introduction. Um, as you said, the Handbook of Systemic Family Therapy was just, it was such an honor and an experience of a lifetime to be involved with it, to be working with Karen and my amazing uh, co-editors that were all involved in the project. I think that the most interesting part for me is how this all came about. So several years ago, I want to say in 2016 or so, Karen first started calling a few people and she she kind of let me know that she just wanted to get on a phone call, run some ideas. And the plan was that there was this huge body of knowledge within family therapy. You know, we all have had German and Kniskern, you know, the, the old classics, the blue and the red volumes, and that it was really high time to update that based off of all of the new research, the ways of conceptualizing, you know, things like common factors and all of that. So, so the idea was that we needed to have one or two volumes, that was the plan at that time, to pull all of this knowledge together and to be not only have that as a repository of what is being done and, and to really highlight the research, but to also have it serve multi, multiple other purposes, such as as a, as a textbook at the graduate level, to be able to share with other disciplines and say, here's how we, we think about systemic ideas and so on and so forth. And as the conversations grew, we met uh, in small groups at AAMFT. We met, I think, once in Salt Lake City. We met once in, in uh, Chicago. And uh, various groups of people within the field were invited. And as these ideas grew, we created an outline of what the volumes would look like. And I remember that it went from one or two volumes to three volumes. And then eventually we realized there was so much that needed to be incorporated that it had to be four volumes. And Karen just led the effort. She was, um, I really miss her. She was, she was an amazing mentor. Um, she was my dissertation chair, professor, mentor, friend from the time that I started my doctoral work. She had this ability to both hone in to what was important and to also take this big picture view of the field. She knew everyone, everyone knew her. And so that was how the whole four volume idea came about. And then it really took off once Karen had the, the people that she wanted you know, to work with most closely. And then we identified authors and so on. So, And I too feel very fortunate to be part of this project as an author and then talking to the authors in this live series we've been doing. So we have been kind of guilty, certainly in my practice and in the way I train therapists and also on, on our show, it being kind of North American centered. So today we are continuing our discourse into global mental health or more systemic interventions, thinking globally, even if we're working within the state. So I'm curious how you got into the field to start with and specifically how you got interested in this topic, because we always like to know a little bit about our guests before we delve into the news you can use, so to speak. So mm -hmm. what's your journey into MFT? Sure. Eli, I was born and raised in India. And I think some, some of my friends know this, that I've lived in India, in Hong Kong, and of course, in the United States. You know, it, there is an interesting story. My, my mother's a clinical social worker. And so when I was 12, she pretty much dragged me to a, a conference or a presentation that she was going to. And I remember very clearly that it was on identity development and from an Ericksonian, Eric Erickson's perspective. And I just remember sitting there as a 12-year-old completely enthralled. And I, I just felt like that speaker was speaking to me, even though I didn't want to be there. I was in the back of the room sulking initially. And that was the moment that I realized that this is what I want to do. And I've never looked back. I've been fortunate enough to have had opportunities to pursue, you know, initially the field of psychology at the undergrad and the master's levels. And then while I was in doing my master's, I came across an internship opportunity where my supervisor was actually an LMFT who had been trained in the U.S. and was now working in what was called Bombay at that time is now the city of Mumbai. Just a fortuitous that I had all these connections. She introduced me to the works of Jay Haley, Mnuchin, and what have you, and I knew that I wanted to eventually do a PhD. 
And uh, I applied to several schools in the US. Um, I got into a couple. And I think Karen was the only one who wanted to do a phone interview. This was the day be- days before the internet. You actually like wrote letters to programs that you wanted to be admitted to. And she phoned me for an interview. And, and just that conversation I had, I knew that I wanted to be in, in her program and to work with her. And that's how I ended up in family therapy. So you are kind of a second generation uh, helping professional was in your family lineage, your mom, and you're international and global by nature. I imagine that was quite a culture shift coming from India to Lubbock, Texas. <laughs> uh, so you you are global by nature. If I am not, and just listening to this for the first time, why is it important to understand family interventions or thinking more systemically in a global context? Why should I care? That's a great question. So if we think about recent events, and I will talk about something that just happened, you know, one ship stuck in the Suez Canal can impact whether or not you can buy a chair or a table lamp in your local furniture store. So little little events that we think of as happening far away impact our lives and there's just global trade the stock markets across the world are all linked and they watch each other and and the you know dow goes up and down depending on what's happening in japan or london or or um, mumbai you know obviously the pandemic and i just came back from india 3 days ago i had gone for a very short visit to see my my parents and the planes both directions were packed and these were not people who were going for a vacation they were going because they had family they cared about those you know they were worried about family members and people were just going back and forth to connect with their family members and the pandemic has really brought into sharp focus this idea that we are not separated by these borders we're in fact connected and what happens in one part of the world impacts everyone we we know that of course as systemic thinkers how do you think we should go about integrating uh, systemic ideas into a globally relevant framework because if, if you're not international mm-hmm. like you are you don't have uh, experiences outside of the borders as a therapist like we all know the macro issues impact the micro practice of couple and family therapy, but exactly how do we start is which we're going to talk about this hour. How do we start integrating these ideas? You know, that that's a fabulous way to, to start thinking. And I, I really liked what you asked, which is why should I care? Mm-hmm. And then once we, we answered the fact that it's, it's not, it's, we literally can't afford to not care. Right. And once we come to that understanding, we have to recognize that what happens within a relationship, within an individual, with their partner, with their family members, within their neighborhood and their community is intimately linked with events that are happening in the larger community. For example, I'll talk about the Black Lives Matter movement, right? Issues of oppression and racism that took place in 2020 and before that and are continuing to happen right now within the AAPI community, for example. All of those impact individuals and they impact the ways in which people connect with each other, the way stress will affect relationships. So in our training, in our actual hands-on work that we do, we have to bring into the therapy room questions around what's happening around the family, what's happening in their neighborhood, what are they watching in the news, and how does it make them feel? How is it bringing fear and doubt, or at times, hopefully, um, you know, action and happiness into their lives? But all of those things really are interconnected, and we can't afford to not take into account what happens at the macro level. So when we think about starting to conceptualize interventions in the global context, we have to take this big picture view, almost like you step back and you look at what's going on. And uh, we start with asking clients, what else is impacting you other than what's you know the immediate presenting problem? And in working with my own clients, for example, I found that so many of my clients, particularly my BIPOC clients, were deeply impacted, disturbed, distressed, just, you know, were dealing with anxiety, trauma, 
around all of the things that had happened last year, even if they lived in a safe community, people who looked like them were being impacted. You know, many of these individuals really deeply cared about what was going on in the news. They wanted to be part of change, but they also felt terrified. And so when we carry that, that has got to have a deep impact on the way we relate to our friends, neighbors. And I can actually, if it's okay, I'd like to actually share a clinical story. Which oh, is, please. No, we love clinical stories. Yeah. Thank you. It's it's uh, heavily disguised. But in, in this case, this individual client was self-referred because they had an entanglement with their neighbor. And, you know, both the client and the neighbor were walking their dogs. The dogs, you know, did something. And my client found himself just yelling at the neighbor in a way that he later reported to me was an overreaction. And he recognized that he overreacted, but he wasn't entirely sure why he overreacted. And he was just afraid that, you know, what are the neighbors going to say? This was all in public and so on. And as we delved into it, a little bit deeper, it didn't take much to recognize the fact that this client who identifies as African-American was so just just completely uh, highly vigilant at all times because of what had been going on and had forgotten that the, the neighbor's spouse was a retired law enforcement person. And so there were all these layers that we had to unpack and say, you know, how how do you believe that you're seeing your neighbor? How do you believe the neighbors see you? Um, You know, this was not just about these two dogs getting into it, but it was about this bigger series of events that were going on, how this individual identified how, you know, that this this moment in history in our lives and in the life of this client and the neighbor and so on and so forth. So it didn't take a lot to get to that, but it was really important to articulate that and to see how that played out in, in what the client experienced. And I mean, you mentioned two common threads, uh, the pandemic, which has affected people all over the world and then Black Lives Matter movement and everything that's going on in the United States with the ra- racial upheaval. So it's even if it's not tied to presenting problems, it's hard to imagine not affecting our clients. So you said step one is to just ask how these events are affecting Mm -hmm. people. Have you ever gotten any pushback or what if you have a client system that won't necessarily endorse what has been happening globally is affecting them? Do you back off or do you create Mm -hmm. some linkage in between? Uh, Very, very interesting question. So uh, in, in the chapter that is about global interventions in the, in volume four of the systemic uh, family therapy handbook, I talk about the fact that we have to come from a place of cultural humility. And, you know, speaking of the pandemic, one of the things that we've all become aware of is that there are so many people who refuse to get vaccinated. And I'd written about this in the chapter, obviously, prior to the pandemic in a whole other context. But there's such interesting research on what goes on in in the way that people think about vaccines. As we know, historically, for example, the African-American community has had certain experiences that might possibly make them mistrust certain uh, medical information. There might be uh, other groups of people for other reasons, because they are probably they see themselves as more individualistic that they reject the idea that someone can give them this information and ask them, quote unquote, ask them to vaccinate. So coming from a point of cultural humility, I think it's really important to recognize that one size does not fit all. We can't just provide scientific information to everyone and say, hey, these are some reasons why the vaccine works. And, you know, obviously, now that you know this, you should get vaccinated because people will filter that information in different ways. And so coming back to people who will push back, it's my job to open up the space to ask those questions and then to gently back off if it's not the right time or the right place. And I think, you know, as as we become more experienced in therapy, we learn to kind of dance in and out of that space where we ask the question maybe in a different way or wait for a more opportune time. There are, you know, I've had, for example, I've had clients who've said, no, I I don't have anything to say about race or gender or anything like that. And then several sessions later, the, the person revealed 
that they had Japanese ancestry and that it had been such a negative experience for that particular family during World War II and its aftermath that this client really sort of put that piece of their identity in the back recesses of their mind. And so there was a breakthrough and it was the right time for that client. And so maybe there are people who are not willing to go there at the beginning and they have good reason to not do that. But there are other times when they can relate to it. I agree. And I like what you said about creating space. A large percentage of our listeners are professionally young MFTs. And Mm -hmm. sometimes when there is a clear cultural difference in the therapy room, somebody coming from a complete different background than you, young therapists don't want to bring it up because they don't want to either feel self-conscious or have their client feel self-conscious of the system. However, creating that space and acknowledging differences and, you know, I don't know what it's like. I don't know your customs or traditions, but I'm curious and I want to learn. I often tell students that I'm training is curiosity is one of these clear therapist factors that as long as you come from a good place and wanting to learn, it's far better than acting like you know what is going on with that group if you don't know. So talk more about steps to being kind of culturally humble. I really like that as a big part of the chapter and something, no matter how much experience that you have in the therapy room, it's something that helps build an alliance and obviously promotes further understanding of cultures or backgrounds very different from that of the therapist. Building that alliance is, of, of course, key. It, it's, it cuts across cultures and nations and continents. I often go back to the model that I've uh, proposed in that chapter, which is the systemic integrative framework. Uh, what, I, what I think of is, you know, it's, it's an ecologically based model. It, it's familiar to people because there are so many different ways in which we use that ecological framework. But the way that I would I would start is by thinking about different concentric circles. And I, I think about the, the largest, the outside circle as the pan-cultural circle, where we have to take into account clients' worldviews. So in some cases, clients might think of health or illness in specific ways. Another example that I can give you is that in some cultures, and, and this is a this is actually a real example, that there was a there was a client, not mine, but someone else's that I was consulting with, um, a client who was actually based in India, and she had you know severe uh, conflict within her extended family, and the way that her symptoms were expressed was that she believed that these people, that the ones that she had conflict with had powers over her. So we might think of it as delusions. We might think of it as an alternate worldview. For her, it made sense that these people were ganging up against her and that they were forcing her into positions that she was uncomfortable with. And to cut a long story short, what ended up happening was that the therapist that helped them basically worked with the extended family so that people then ended up living in separate residences and they still maintained close contact, but having separate residences decreased the the frequency of contact and the amount of conflict. So I present that to say that there are so many different ways in which people approach health and suffering, and we need to be able to go with them and start with them wherever they are. Another layer that I think of is the contextual layer, which is the historical, sociocultural kind of perspective to take, which is, for example, um, again, thinking about Asian Americans in the United States at this point in time, there's been a substantial increase in hate crimes against Asian Americans. And right now to be visibly identified as Asian American, puts people at risk. So when we we have a client who might identify as Asian American or might have family members that identify as Asian American, we have to think about how is this group perceived right now? Are there issues of shame or fear that they've internalized? How how are those getting expressed in the way that the kids are being uh, treated by peers? Or, you know, is this person afraid to go to the grocery store? And thinking about that in the larger context as well. I'll remind everybody as I'm 
talking to Mudita, we have a question and answer box in the chat, and I'll be occasionally going to that. So we have one in there based on what you were saying earlier. Uh, an attendee wants to know, are there any liability or scope of practice concerns when a psychotherapist is prescribing medical interventions like getting a vaccine? Um, so uh, obviously, I'm not suggesting that we prescribe vaccines to people. I was simply using that as an example of how when people reject the vaccine, we have to be culturally sensitive to what their values are and how they're thinking about it. And so presenting educational information to people, scientific information to people is not adequate. It might come from the perspective of the therapist as being the most rational way to, to discuss the vaccine, for example. But no, unless you were a medical professional, you wouldn't recommend the vaccine to anyone. You know, given you've had experience in India and here in the States, what can we learn as far as family therapy, systemic interventions from what happens in these lower income countries and places like India? To back up a little bit, there's so much work that's been done that's funded by the World Health Organization. NIMH has also funded some of this. And there are efforts that are going on across the world. There are several countries in Asia, in Africa, in, in Europe, and of course, even the United States and, and North America, where countries have used approaches that really look at task shifting. So what often happens is that much of our literature, much of our training is very Eurocentric. The theories that we study, the, the textbooks that we have access to, were written by people who were trained and were thinking in from certain traditions. And so we often think of knowledge as flowing from high-income countries to low-income countries. And what we need to do is to think of knowledge as flowing in, in two directions, bi-directional. For example, the connection between mind and body, right? So in, in many, many cultures, that connection between mind and body has been known to exist for thousands upon thousands of years. It's become popularized with mindfulness interventions now in the United States, for example, or the practice of yoga, for example, but other countries, other cultures have had not only different ways of conceptualizing health, but they've had interventions, they've had knowledge, they've had ways in which certain, certain mental health difficulties were addressed from frameworks that may not be so familiar to you know, students and professionals who are in Western and Northern Europe or high-income countries such as the United States and Canada and so on. And even within North America, there are traditions that belong to indigenous populations, other communities that you know, consist of immigrants, or, or uh, for example, people who identify as African-American. There are local and culturally specific ways in which mental health has been conceptualized and managed. And so it's really important to be open to some of those ways in which people think and intervene. And so coming back and making that link to what I was talking about, the World Health Organization, the World Health Organization has long uh, proposed that we need to decentralize the way mental health is treated so that it's, it's not simply about people going to a trained mental health licensed professional, because we know that those don't exist in adequate numbers. They don't exist in adequate numbers in other countries. And now in the pandemic, I don't know about your practice, but I've had far, far more referrals than I could ever handle. I mean, I had a tough time even finding professionals to, to birth these clients out to. So when we think of this huge demand, and globally, there's just an unbelievable demand for mental health. There's a huge need for mental health. We need to think of more creative ways of intervening. We need to find different ways to decentralize mental health so that we can train folks who are local, who are trusted, who are culturally sensitive, and who can impart mental health assessment and intervention at low cost. Right. And those are the credible sources. Those are the reliable voices, incredible people that sometimes uh, populations, while they don't 
trust necessarily mental health or a therapist. They will trust those credible sources. What are some, I like this idea of task shifting. What are some other skills or questions that therapists should ask their diverse client base? Maybe it comes from a different culture or has a different background. What are some other questions to keep in mind that can create that space and open up the dialogue to build that alliance? I go back to some of the things that Sue and Sue talk about, which is we've got to have the knowledge and the skills as well, right? It's not just curiosity, but you also want to come from a point of of really trying to train yourself. So whether we're talking about um, race and ethnicity, or we're talking about gender identity, sexual orientation, social social class, or or you know many other ways in which we're similar and different, that we need to be able to to have a very broad based education and training, and to to learn enough to know a, a little bit, but also to know what we don't know. And so it's important that if you recognize that your clients bring in a particular identity into the therapy room and you don't know enough about it, it's important to go out and learn about it and to ask the clients about their specific ways in which they might practice a particular tradition or uh, challenges that they've experienced because of their specific way of identifying themselves. There's that general piece. I think some of it has to do with skills. And this is where great supervision comes in handy, where if you can get videotaped sessions that you share with your supervisor or live supervision, where even if you don't know the exact words and you're trying, maybe your supervisor can then help you frame the questions in a a specific way or, or to open the questions up. And often what I find that's really helpful is to start by saying, you know, you may have noticed that there are some differences between us. How do you feel about working with someone who comes from a different background? In my case, my accent, the way I look, you know, people are are trying to place me often. And so when I open up that conversation, people feel free to ask me questions and I can ask them questions as well. Your answers are stimulating other questions from the chat room. He says, will you please speak about working with the enormous regional differences, even here within our borders within the United States? I live in Manhattan and am grateful for its diversity. Uh, But as a New Englander background, however, I'm aware of the impact on my identity of New England as a region and in subtle but a real contrast to other regions in the USA. That's Gene uh, Balderston uh, from the chat room. So what about regional differences even within the, the U.S.? Mm. Hi, Jean. Good question about regional differences. I think that's that's such a great awareness because where we come from in terms of asking questions is so determined often by our own experiences and blind spots that we, we might have. So I'm a, I'm a big supporter of doing your own work. And that might be, you know, through workshops, conferences, you know, your own therapy through participating in community events where we start to recognize our own privilege and ways in which we might not understand how our experiences are limited. And so if if someone who thinks of themselves as belonging to New York but eventually recognizes that there are huge differences between them and their clients' life experiences, worldviews, and so on, might might really benefit from reflecting on what their experiences and background have taught them and where things remain to be learned. And once we can do that, I think we open ourselves up to to just sort of gaining greater insights, to to becoming far more aware of our own privilege and how that plays into questions we ask or even places that we don't go to when we're conducting therapy. We may just not be aware that this is something that is of huge importance to a client. Doing some of that work through reading, learning, supervision, your own personal work, all of that, I would say. Jean Montgomery from the chat room says, uh, pointing out that this is in our field, in our history of family therapy, Mnuchin trained paraprofessionals to do this work. And it was very important very early on. And 
Emily in the chat room says, can how can pastors or rabbis or any spiritual leaders help this load of mental health demand? So back to your point that these credible sources, these boots on the ground are very important. And these are lessons we can take from a global context. How do you think uh, spiritual leaders can help with what we're talking about today? Um, That's such a great point. You know, so many communities rely on their spiritual leaders for information, for trustworthy messages and so on. And and I I, want to connect this to the previous conversation about vaccines as well, that I'm aware of the fact that many spiritual leaders are actually using uh, that opportunity to, to discuss you know, why vaccination might be important and so on. And so coming from uh, someone that people trust and someone that's seen as just intimately connected with the community can make a huge difference. In terms of uh, how spiritual leaders can help, I'm, I'm thinking back to a study that I actually led, and that was to look at the challenges that the Latinx community uh, experiences in the Chicagoland area. And what we found was that many people who identify as Latino might not go and see a mental health professional right away, but they will see obviously a physician or they'll go to their priest and talk about what's bothering them. And so the way to access mental health for them is through a spiritual leader. And so if a community mental health center, for example, wants to offer services to the Latinx community in the Chicago area, they might really be advised to make sure that they are connected with churches and and other places of worship so that they have that direct connection there. You know, if you're thinking of building your practice, uh, you need rainmakers. So even if the population that you want to work with is skeptical of mental health or traditional psychotherapy, if they are referred by a credible source and that credible source knows you and what you're about, that can build the bridge. So I've certainly gotten many referrals over the years with people very different than my background from a credible source. And many times it is a spiritual uh, leader or someone heavily involved in the community. So even if I'm not a part of that community, I am curious and have access to direct leaders or people involved in that community. Okay. What are other things, if you're just getting turned on to this idea today, Mudita, what are other things you want our listeners to know about that are so relevant to starting to bridge this gap and working more in this global systemic context? It's it's so crucial for us to remember that the the global burden in terms of mental health is huge in in middle and low income countries. It's also huge in high income countries. But one of the things that really struck me as I learned about this literature was that the role that depression plays in terms of of negatively impacting communities and economies. And when we think about uh, depression, there's there's you know so many reasons where it's poverty, it's war, it's displacement. There's all kinds of trauma, and and so often as therapists we want to address that trauma, but if we think about, for example, the border crisis that's going on, right? There are there are people at the border, and they they might be undergoing really traumatic experiences right now. They might be, you know, dealing with the displacement and the ambiguity and so on. But we also have to look at why they are there. They're there because there are root causes of poverty and and other kinds of lack of safety, lack of, you know, having access to, you know, two meals a day. And those are desperate situations. So when we think about global mental health, we often have to think about the root causes that lead to these kinds of traumatic things so that as we design interventions, as we're thinking about what interventions would be most effective, there's a couple of things. We have to involve local stakeholders. There's something called the Emerald Program that you know people can read about in the literature. This is a this is a program again, you know, supported by the World Health Organization that says that when we're thinking about policies around mental health, we have to involve people who live in the community, 
and people who have a stake in the community, like small businesses or school teachers in the community, people who are informal leaders in the community, to, to get them all uh, at, at the table and say, here are some of the problems of substance abuse, of increased suicide rates, etc. How do we address them? What do we need to do in this community? And when we have that local knowledge, there's not only engagement, but it, those interventions speak to a community in a, in a more specific and targeted way that policies that come from outside or from upstairs or whatever will not have the same impact. Yeah. Following up on that, another question from the chat room from Jen, uh, she says, what are some ways that we're able to branch out to refugee families? I've worked with some interpreters, another one of these stakeholders with refugee families, and I've found those interpreters were a part of that particular community, which made it more helpful for the families. Do you have any tips in helping these communities with regards to decentralizing mental health and utilizing non-English speaking support? What I'm aware of, and you know, the Chicagoland area, of course, has um, a number of organizations that sponsor refugee families and so on, is that it's important to, again, understand what these families need based off of our conversations with them without assuming that what worked with one set of refugee families will work with another set of refugee families. The circumstances are different. The timing might be different, language, culture, and so on. It's so important to use those interpreters, but it's also important to involve other local leaders who might be directly connected with that community to see what they feel are the needs of those families. And uh, you know how we might work with them would be it, it would be definitely necessary to do systemic thinking family based work we know from the literature that uh, some very successful work with trauma and refugee families has involved systemic and and family based uh, kinds of interventions almost in any family that has migrated from or been driven from their home to another part of the world, that connection, that sense of belongingness is lost. And so there's there's that loss that they are dealing with. And there's so much that they have to cope with and adjust to that it's hard for us working from the outside with that community to imagine what their needs are. And so just engaging people and saying, let's come up with ways in which we can help you where you need it the most would be a really critical way to go. Yeah, the great questions. And we still have our remaining moments. Feel free to type a question in that Q&A box. Here's another one. Preserving the family as a system is so crucial to family healing, but the social and economic and political issues today tend to further disintegrate family healing. What as therapists can we do to repair the system to wholeness? Again, such an important area of conversation because we know, you know, from the work that people are doing in a global context that the family as a unit is so critical in in terms of presenting problems as well as resilience and healing. And so in trying to bring the family together, I would say that, you know, just recognizing that not having family nearby is a loss. We've certainly seen that with the pandemic that you know, one of the hardest things for people has been the separation between parts of the family, not being able to see grandparents and, and so on and so forth. I, I would say where possible, utilizing technology to bring the family into the therapy room could be a way to go. Um, and then also the development of strong bonds between neighbors, community members, the creation of fictive kin, which is this idea that we can we can create family-like relationships where we're missing actual family members. And then going back to global mental health, something that's been very successful in many countries is this idea of creating fellowship through uh, group interventions. And you know, it's it's not only cost and time effective, but it creates such strong bonds where people start to to support each each other outside of the group as well. And that brings people together. So 
when we can, we try and work with family members through technology or, or bringing them into the therapy room, maybe even through experiential work, empty chair kinds of things. And when that's not possible to do it through creating connections and bonds outside. Our audience is right on the pulse with what I was thinking today. I always love when we have an active uh, chat room like this. So as a as a clinical trainer, as you are, and as I am, as one of the directors of the most storied and large MFT programs in the country, as you are, this attendee says, I love the ideas you are sharing, but sometimes I get pushback from MFT students who thinks what we're talking about today is social work, or it's not uh, psychotherapy or systemic therapy like they signed up for. How might we respond to this way of thinking? And what do we need to do as a field as MFTs to prepare the next generation of systemic practitioners to do the work we're speaking about today? Because I don't know about you, but uh, this is not traditionally covered in uh, a standard curriculum. I mean, obviously being culturally competent is important, but what we're talking about today is kind of the next level of cultural competence and really doing the work. So what do we need to do as a field? Um, One of the great uh, strengths, I think, of the Handbook of Systemic Family Therapy is that as, as much as possible, we really invited every single author of every single chapter to integrate this larger, multicultural, global, diverse set of perspectives in the writing. And to we invited people to critique the literature so that it would be uh, inclusive and it would be relevant across contexts. So some of it involves going back to to resources and saying, you know, this is what we're finding is most helpful to our clients. Another level at which I think, you know, personally, I found it helpful is to share my own cases with my students. And every time I talk about a case where there were so many different intersectional kinds of issues that were involved in the case, people really, they they find themselves kind of enthralled and they find themselves drawn into thinking about the case differently. Just as an example, I was was thinking about a case from a few years ago. There was this woman who was uh, Asian Indian who had been referred to me because she was very depressed. And the psychiatrist said that all she was, all she cared about was the fact that, you know, her husband had Uh, moved in with another woman, she worried about what everyone else in the community would think of her. And so when I started to work with this woman, it became clear to me that due to patriarchal and gender and other socioeconomic sorts of issues, she was highly dependent on her ex for just financial support, but also a lot of her, her position, her location, her status came from being married to him. And so once we started looking at both the cultural issues as well as the the gender issues that were involved in how she was framing this problem, she she started to find that her depression was was addressed and and was uh, withering away because she was able to see her own life and her own identity differently. And there were there were so many other issues around how the the South Asian community viewed mental health. There were stigma issues associated with it, and she was almost afraid to tell her extended family that she was going through a divorce because she didn't want them to turn against her. But in kind of working with her around all of these cultural issues, and then eventually having her connect even her parents to some mental health resources, she was able to heal and come out of it much stronger. And so when you think about it, you could actually uh, work with this case as, okay, this person's depressed, they're going through a divorce, and we're only going to focus on that. But when you open it up, you can recognize that there's so many other variables that impinge upon this case that really need to be understood. And so Examples like that might help our students. Also, encouraging them to work in in diverse settings, community mental health settings, you know, refugees, as someone had just mentioned, all of those will open people's eyes to what really systemic work is about. 
Yeah, I agree. If you can hear a story from, again, another credible source, in this case, a supervisor or a faculty member, it's the best way to pique students' interest and expand the conversation or the systemic framework to the things we've talked about today. Now, I'm curious here is full circle as we end up. So you are the second generation uh, mental health professional. What does your mom back in India think of your contribution here in the States? And how often do you all talk about what we've been talking about today? They're really proud of the work I do. When I think about the, the commonalities that I have with my mother's interests and where some of those influences came from, I mean, it's sort of very obvious in a genogram to think about where how I ended up where I did. I think back to a workshop where which I conducted in India for other family therapy professionals on family of origin. And my mom was in the audience and it was awkward. <laughs> but at the same time, it was really, really cool to have her in the audience because it was a way of us kind of connecting around both the content and then, you know, also to think that she thought highly enough of what I did to actually sign up and attend the workshop. So it's it's just been a wonderful experience. Thank you for asking. Mudita, we have to end our conversation here, but there will be, there's some still some other questions in the chat room, especially some from some MFT program directors wondering how they can integrate some of this more into their curriculum. So for anybody, you don't have to be a program director, you can be a student, a practitioner who wants to continue the dialogue and you're easy to get a hold of. Tell people the best way to reach you, Medita, and uh, we'll plug the handbook one more time. Absolutely. Email is the best way to get a hold of me, mristogi at family-institute.org. And yeah, the handbook speaks for itself. It's just been such an honor to have been associated with it. Well, it has been great to have you here and I've learned a lot and I look forward to keeping the dialogue going. So again, the handbook, you can find out everything you need on the handbook of Systemic Family Therapy at amft.org slash handbook. Again, I'd like to thank Brighter Vision for sponsoring today. Go there for all your marketing and private practice needs. And once again, we love hearing from you. The best way to reach us, if you're on Twitter, it's at the AMFT. I'm at Dr. Eli Live. You can drop me a message, Eli Karam at NorthstarCounselingCenter.com. You can also find me at EliKaram.com. And we really listen to you to inform uh, what we're focusing on. And you can hear us. We drop on Fridays twice a month, wherever you find your most uh, favorite podcast, whether that is Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher. We always appreciate a review and a star rating. Helps us rise up the ranks in the mental health podcast. And I can't thank our guest enough, Mudita, today. And I look forward to being with you next time. So until then, stay systemic, my friends.